the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Isaiah was the great uh, court prophet of the kingdom of, of Judah, and he, during his time, had the task of reaffirming fidelity to the covenant, especially in front of the dangers of uh, foreign, foreign invaders uh, and uh, the possibility that the king might have to, to realize alliances with foreign kingdoms like, like Egypt and thinking that that would protect him. And Isaiah always said, no, no, be, be faithful to the Lord. And part of his task was to reaffirm the, the extent of, of God's love for his people. And he was saying, don't worry, even though we have attacks around us, though we have pagans around us and people that are hostile around us, God loves us, God loves you. And in one of the most beautiful passages towards the end, of Isaiah, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these may forget, yet I will never forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the very palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God is saying, I have engraved you, I have etched you, I have etched your name on the very palms of my hands. The palms of God's hands, if you could say, God had hands and he would be looking at his palms all the time as we often see our own palms and people read lines on the palms and try to figure out meaning. Well, if you were to figure out a meaning on God's palms, you would see your name there. Just your name. Or just the very image of a mother who could never forget her child. It's a, it's a very touching metaphor to describe and to evoke the extent of God's love for his people. And Pope John Paul II applied it to the merciful love of God for his people. The word there that is used uh, is Brahim uh, in Hebrew. And it's uh, referring to the love of God, but it's, 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 it's a word that derives from maternal, maternal love, like a mother. God has borne the chosen people, has borne the chosen people, borne mankind, borne us like in his womb, like a mother bears a child in her womb. He has given birth to his people. He has nourished his people. It's a, that, that word 
Brahim is a feminine variant of the of the other word that expresses his fidelity, which is hesed. Hesed uses that often. That means fidelity or loyalty, but it's more of a masculine version. But it's there's also Brahim. And uh, that word Brahim just evokes this whole psychological backdrop of goodness, of tenderness, of patience, of understanding, of readiness to forgive always. So much so that he etches our name on, his, on the palms of, ours, of his hand like a tattoo. That describes the love of God. If we knew the love of God, we would know that it was like, like he had etched our name on his hands. And Pope John Paul II had used that image of the etching, the etching on the hand, when he spoke to young people who are looking, who are uncertain, who are kind of floundering about, sometimes about their future, and, and they, have, they lack securities about who truly does love them. He said, uh, to young people, you can do a lot, you can really commit yourself to give yourself, to live for others, because you are sustained in the love of God. He said, hold fast to this certainty, the only one that can give meaning, strength, and joy to life. His love will never leave you, his covenant of peace will never be removed from you, he has stamped your name on the palms of his hands. So the very basis of the gift of ourselves and the basis of the gift of anybody to commit themselves to others, not just to themselves, not to their own ideals, to their own self-fulfillment, but that they might be able to give themselves to others is the fact that God already loves them so intensely that all we can do is use these metaphors. Use the metaphor of the being engraved in the hand uh, or, or like a mother who would never abandon her children. They're just, they're just metaphors that help us. They're beautifully, well, they're inspired by scripture naturally and, and, and they, they have to give us strength. And we can use those metaphors as well to help others so that they also have a life in which they give of themselves. They can readily be strong enough to give of themselves. They can really live a life for others. It's a, it's a beautiful phrase, to live for others, not to live for themselves. I saw recently a, an interview with Denzel Washington, a famous actor, who said that he experienced that indelible mark as well when many years ago, like 30 years ago, he was at some church service where they did these altar calls and they call people up to receive the Lord Jesus in their life and, and people suddenly feel called and they go up and, and he went there somewhat hesitant at first. He didn't, somebody, a friend of his had invited him. He recounts this and um, and nevertheless, he, he went up, I suppose, moved by the Spirit, 
And he went up to go and give his life to Jesus. And he recounts how as he went up, he said it was an absolutely, he was just overwhelmed. It was like a, a supernatural experience. He said he felt light. He says his cheeks got hot. And uh, he said, he asked his mom, Mom, my, my cheeks got hot. She says, oh, yes, son, that's the devil leaving you. you know? That's the devil leaving outside your cheeks. You know? and, uh, and he, it really uh, kept him grounded that there was a God that loved him. And uh, it, in, it was an, a huge inspiration for him. But he said that at that time, though he felt light, he felt his cheeks hot, he felt the love of God. He was not yet ready at that time, with all the success presumably that he was knowing as an actor, he was not yet ready to live that at that time, to live a life of gift of self, at least not yet at that time. And so then later he spoke to his mother again, and she said, Denzel, you do good, you do a lot of good for people, but you're still not living the way you ought. And uh, she said that moment was not enough. There was this unity of life had not yet kicked in. He was on fire for a moment, but after again speaking to his mother and and with some time, he understood that he had to give of himself. He realized that he could no longer just accumulate all kinds of things for himself, or, or live a kind of idealism or that, that, that was in some way just there as a form of self-realization, with all the success he had, presumably as an actor. And uh, whenever he speaks in public, he often repeats that phrase. He says, an old phrase that is known, he says, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you, right? All, all that you accumulate, all the, whether they are ideals or whether they are material goods or health, uh, uh, you know, the Egyptians tried it, but all they did is that they just got themselves robbed. Right? They put all the gold and wealth inside their tombs, but, well, none of that was left except the the pyramids themselves, even the bodies were robbed. And uh, he says, all I want, he said, all I want is just to be in that number when the saints go marching in. I don't care if I'm in the first line, in the middle line, in the back, I don't care. I just want to be among the saints when they come marching in. It just doesn't pay off to accumulate a life for oneself. And indeed, we are now in a culture that wants to load up the U-Haul with pers a personal understanding of fulfillment. Now I have to live for myself. I've lived for others. Now I have to live for them. Now I have to do things for myself. They, I've heard it said. I've heard it said. Now it's time for me. And they don't say it in an ironic way, they say it in an honest way. They really say it sometimes, thinking that this is what will truly make them happy. It's not just material either. 
the U-Haul is a sign of, of perhaps what we, what we accumulate. The U-Haul is a sign of what, what's in it for me. Or people put it all in storage. They have these big storage units. This, this is mine. What I have to do for me. And this fact that this mentality comes in, and, and we see it in young people, we see it in different people, it, it can really blur the purpose of our life. Because the purpose of our life is not for us. As I say, we, we won't be able to bring that U-Haul with us in the hearse. It blurs it because it leads us to forget that we have been loved by God. We have been truly engraved in His hand. So that we can be grabbed by Him, loved by Him. We forget that and we think in terms of usefulness. We think in terms of success, recognition. And we can easily start to forget about the gratuitousness of being ourselves a gift, that our life can truly be a gift. Lord, I want my life to be a gift. I want my life to be described like that, that I have decided to live for others. And not only that, but I have received the, the grace to be able to live for others. I can do that ultimately not because I'm somehow smarter or better or even for that matter, better formed, better, I don't know, better knowledge. But simply because I'm engraved in your hand, because you love me. And uh, I have received a lot. I have received from others, I have received from God. We forget how to be a gift to others. This can happen. We can forget how to be a gift. And we just want to do things perfectly so that we, we can be recognized, we can be praised. This, uh, this whole idea of self-fulfillment, it's, it's ultimately, we know, uh, the wrong focus. We know the words. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's the principal purpose of our life, and that must be in our DNA. You must love the Lord your God, because He loves you, with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We understand readily that we must love God. We also know that Christians must love one another, we must love our neighbor, we must love the people around us, also because they are loved by God. Sometimes we forget the last one, that we must love ourselves. You must love your neighbor as yourself. So there, there are three things there, like a tripod that has three legs, that has to be well uh, stabilized. Doesn't mean we, we make ourselves the center of the universe or anything, but, uh, but the, the, those three have to be there for the for for the reality of our life to be stable. And perhaps sometimes people forget about loving their neighbor or they forget about loving God or the insistence of that and they, they think that they can stand on one little tripod, one little leg of the tripod 
the self-fulfillment aspect and the, the love of themselves in the sense that they take care of themselves more. For us, you could say in some way, one, if, if you were to encapsulate in one brief phrase what expresses our vocation and our purpose, it would be something like to live for others. Or maybe you could say to live for God and live for others. This is uh, this simple phrase, to live for others, is, is a very essential component of what we have to instill in the girls that come here for the means of formation. How can I live for others? To invite them to live for others. It's true it can often happen they come because of what they like here, what they enjoy, and they can focus first on this aspect of self-realization or self-fulfillment, and secondarily, they focus on relationships. To live for others is, a, is, is perhaps a distant, blurry ideal that is maybe very good for others. But we have to refocus that. Live for others. You know, recently, I had, to, I had to do a filming of a meditation. I was at the manoir, and uh, the person helping me had a super-duper camera that they bought for, for the visit of the, of the father. And, uh, and we got set up like this on the meditation table, and he focused in on me and everything, and I started preaching the whole time, and I, I thought everything was fine. But then after, he showed me that... He wasn't happy because the whole time, I mean, I don't know what he did wrong or, but, so the whole time this machine has kind of like a, well, it's a camera, but it has a kind of mind of its own and it has an autofocus feature. So most of the time it was focused on me as I was preaching, but then sometimes it would go and focus on the back, think, oh, there's something in there, and it would focus in the back. <laughs> And I would go out of focus, and then it would go back to me, and then boom, bam. And, and the whole time, there was also a, an audio tape of this, and it, you could hear the little machine going, <laughs> it was completely useless, you know, completely useless, because, because the camera had not focused on me. <laughs> You're supposed to focus on me, you know. You're supposed to focus on the essential here, and, you know. <laughs> So, and it wasn't focusing on the right place, right? And, uh, and uh, it was focusing like on the candles in the back, and what the heck, you know? And, um, and, and the girls that come here, sometimes they can focus on the wrong place, you know? They, they focus too much maybe on enjoyments, and they don't maybe manage to learn to focus on, relation, on relationships, on living for others, this idea. If my life could be to live for others. If I or we were to working too hard and doing too much, if we were exhausted and burnt out uh, and uh, thinking that everything else has to be perfect and otherwise it can't be sanctified, 
Well, then th that's not how our father wanted it. He didn't want perfectionism from us, thinking that we can only sanctify that which is absolutely perfectly done, perfectly under our control. Well, yes, then we have been, we've gone kind of out of focus. We've gone taking the wrong route. Our father wanted us, when, you know, when, our, when he says to live for others, he wanted us to rest. He wanted us to be happy, to be active to be alive in the get-togethers. Not because we get some indication that we should do that, but because we enrich ourselves when we give of ourselves. I mean, that's, we enrich ourselves when we give of ourselves. When you die to yourself, that's when you really live. We can imagine the proactive joy that Jesus would have had with his disciples, how joyful he would have been, and how the get-togethers must have been with the apostles, how joyful they must have been, how he might have talked about very solemn things sometimes, but not always. They would have joked, they would have laughed. The great intimacy, of course, comes with the Last Supper. And, uh, and he kneels down in front of them, and he shows the gift of himself by cleaning their dirty feet. He says, St. John said, he loved them to the end. He loved others to the end. He was really preparing the, on, the upcoming events of the Passion, where he will go to the, precisely to the end of his capacities. To the fullest extent of what is possible to give of oneself in the Passion, in the death. And this is what we what we for centuries have, have meditated on so that we can learn how to give of ourselves. He laid aside his garments, he tied a towel around himself, and laying aside his garments, that phrase is symbolic of, he laid aside his garments, why did it? Well, it's a symbolic of his human life. He laid it down in order to take it up again. You can picture the scene as he washed the feet, something reenacted, Holy Thursday, and it's reenacted to, to evoke the scene, but it's not meant as a simple drama. It's meant to re-evoke in all of us, not just in the priest who's the one doing it, of course, but it's meant to re-evoke in us also that generosity. And when Jesus does this, of course, there's a bit of everything in the crowd that Peter reacts, we know, very emotionally. He uh, um, can't understand how the, his Lord, his God, whom he, he has said that he is the son of the living God, he is the Christ, is acting like a household slave, not the presider, not the master. He was still imbued with the idea that he who is the master, the elder, the teacher, must have others as his servants. He can't give himself to others, he has to have others as his servants. The older we get, the more we have to die to ourselves. It can happen that the older we get, the smarter we get in taking care of ourselves. But the older we get, the more we have to die to ourselves, and indeed, the happier we are. Why? Because oh, we take care of our health, we take care of our interior life, 
our formation, but we become better instruments, better examples. The girls come here and they understand that we don't want them simply to have more information about, not even about the faith, I would say. The, we, used to, we used to give out often the book, The Faith Explained, and, and, and I presume we still do that to a certain degree, but uh, it seemed uh, there was a time that nobody explained the faith, and it seemed like everybody needed to have the faith explained clearly so that they could have the beauty of the faith light up and the commandments and the trinity and what the sacraments are and morality and the Eucharist. Uh, and of course that book does a tremendously good job in explaining it. It explains the faith. Because maybe people had erroneous explanations of the faith and stuff like that. Right? But I would say, and that's good, I mean we have to explain the faith. But that's not the essence ultimately of what we do here. At Lincroft we we have to go beyond that, ultimately forming the girls with real character. Character, real maturity. It's the road that we must take against the mainstream culture that they are being um, assailed by. Mainstream culture has ideas about the human person that go right diametrically against the Christian notion. and. Uh, Many of them today are stuck in very virtual worlds, and this idea of forming character. Because, why? Why? It's, yes, we have to give them information about the faith. Yes, we have to explain. But in some ways, I would say now, is, it's like a time we have to refocus on the, on the character aspect. Because you can tell them a whole bunch of things, but if their character is, is not which you know, implies virtues, it's, it's going to be hard to pull them out of the cynicism which our postmodern society has so often uh, encouraged. A cynicism, a kind of doubt about everything, and especially a cynicism about having great ideals. And the greatest ideal we have is to give ourselves for others, to live for others. That's our ideal. And we can be great men and women and give ourselves and die to ourselves. Many people today are very suspicious of that. The late 19th century philosophy started with some ideals. They were suspicious of traditional ideals of Christianity and they broke those down, but they had ideals. But later on, the philosophy started to suggest that no, we can't, we, can't, we can't have ideals. Even Nietzsche had ideals. Even Jean-Paul Sartre had ideals. These were existentialists. They were atheists, but, but they had ideals. Now, in the postmodern world, we are trapped in structures, we are told, that of economics, of larger structures, of immense paradigms that determine the way we think, we are told. If we are Catholic, well, that's because you were brought up Catholic. You, you, your, your mind has been controlled by predetermined paradigms. And all you have to really do, and this is the constant refrain we hear, is just unmask. Unmask those structures. That's the best we can do. 
It's, it's deeply imbued with nihilism. There is no meaning, there is no ideals, just a mask. That wasn't present in Nietzsche or Sartre, however bad they were. And uh, the, the current culture is saying, the postmodern culture, many of the movements, the popular movements today, I mean, the things you see on YouTube and, and Facebook is, is that the culture is controlling you. They speak about burning things down and tearing everything down. The structures must be torn down. Society is torn down, must be torn down. But it's never replaced with anything. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, good, tear it all down, but what are you going to replace it with? And this is very influential in many of the humanities faculties. But we are called to great idealism. And the great idealism that we are called to is to be saints. Maybe what we can do is just talk more about the saints, great saints. Of course, we have Guadalupe now, we have Dora, we have great saints. Saint Maria Goretti, um, we know the stories, we don't know the stories, uh, but we can discover them. So we re-imbue them with the idealism of being saints, of being very good people, of dying to ourselves. And we have many beautiful accounts of the biographies of saints throughout the ages. From St. Francis de Sales, we have now Giorgio Frassati, we have even people that weren't necessarily Christian, Anne Frank, or, or I don't know, or not Catholic, like uh, Sophie Scholl in, in, during, the, during the Second World War, who resisted the Nazis. Or I even heard about a Mormon during the, the Nazi reign, Helmut Hübner, it was a 16-year-old Mormon who resisted the Nazi indoctrination, and he was the youngest person ever to be executed by the Nazis. He was a Mormon, and he was even excommunicated from the Mormon Church because the Mormon Church had been in league with the Nazis. And, and he, he realized the lies that the Nazis were saying because he got a secret radio and stuff. And but those are great uh, stories of people who went beyond themselves. This is what we ask our Blessed Mother to encourage us to re-embrace those great ideals, especially and most fundamentally the ideal not to live for ourselves, but to give ourselves to God and to live for others. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me. In this meditation, I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.